Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. Dr. Ron Messier, a professor emeritus of history, has shared some of his archaeological discoveries with the world as part of a panel and symposium last April at the Block Museum of Art in Northwestern University. The gathering enabled Messier and others to share their findings about Africa's medieval period from the 8th to the 16th centuries. Messier, who has researched the African gold trade in Morocco, is co-director of the Moroccan American Archaeological Project in Ahmad, Morocco. We'll talk about this groundbreaking experience, no pun intended, after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. The 2019-2020 MTSU Experimental Vehicles Program Lunar Rover Teams couldn't compete along with the elite international field at the 2020 NASA Human Explorer Rover Challenge, as the in-person event was canceled in April because of the pandemic. However, the 14-person MTSU Team No. 2 earned the Top Engineering Achievement Prize, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics Neil Armstrong Best Design Award in the University Division for the second time since 2014. The Rover Challenge tasks U.S. and international student teams to design, engineer, and test a human-powered rover on a course that simulates the terrain found on rocky bodies in the solar system. And under the auspices of the university's chapter of the American Democracy Project, retired U.S. Army major and former MTSU military science professor Steve Doherty is pitching his tent in different places around campus each week to attract new voters to sign up before the October 5th deadline to be eligible to vote in the November 3rd election. After a trial run in August on the lawn of the University Honors College, Doherty and his fellow volunteers moved to the south side of Peck Hall, where they registered voters from August 31st to September 3rd. With help from members of the Murfreesboro chapter of the American Association of University Women and the League of Women Voters, Doherty hopes to help improve Tennessee's poor election turnout rates. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Ron, it's great to see you again. Thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Well, it's nice to see you again, too, even though we're uh, 18 miles apart. Uh, You've been conducting research in Morocco for years. Uh, For purposes of this presentation, what did you zone in on specifically? The project that we're referencing here uh, is an exhibit, a museum exhibit, that was mounted and shown first at the Block Museum at Northwestern University. It opened in January and I think it was dismantled in June, the following June, at which time it went to Toronto and was exhibited at the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. It stayed there for six months and then the exhibit is mounted and I'll say mounted, it's not really opened. It's, it's at the Museum of African Art at the Smithsonian in Washington. Uh, although uh, since the Smithsonian is closed uh, due to the pandemic, the exhibit is there, but it, but it, it hasn't been opened uh, yet. And when did it go to the Smithsonian? Uh, this past January. January, 2020. Yes. 
Nonetheless, it's a, a great honor to have an exhibit in the Smithsonian, even though it is not open to the public and being taken care of by the experts there. That's uh, an enormous feather in your cap. You know, we've gotten permission to keep the exhibit open at least to the end of this year. So it's much, you know, it was supposed to be already dismantled and everything sent back to the original locations of the objects. Uh, but because of the pandemic, we'll keep it together at least to the end of the year, probably beyond that. I hope circumstances improve so that the public will have an opportunity to see it up close. How can you help scholars and students make the connection between the knowledge from this era and other eras, other disciplines, other schools of knowledge? Well, I, you know, we disseminate our work basically in two ways. The most traditional way, and I guess uh, what I've done most of my life is through publication, but museum exhibits is an incredibly immediate uh, way to expose our work. You know, archaeology is a very visual science. I mean, we look at objects, we try to interpret these objects, we try to place them into a context to create a storyline, really. Objects do tell a story. Uh, and that's what we, uh, I think, succeeded quite well in doing with this exhibit, the title of which is Caravans of Gold. And the intent is to tell the story of the gold trade, the African gold trade during the Middle Ages. And it's uh, told from a perspective that's different than most of what we read about in the literature. Different in the sense that it places Africa in the center of a global economy, not on the periphery, but in the center of a global economy. Uh, and that economy was very complex, uh, very sophisticated products going and coming from many different directions. The hub visually and, and in terms of organization uh, was West Africa. Given the amounts of territory that the traders had to traverse, did they encounter any difficulties along the way? Violence, thieves? I imagine there are a lot of people who would like to get their hands on not just the gold, but any and all of the wares that were being traded. Travel anywhere in the Middle Ages was uh, risky, but I, you know, I use the term complex to describe the trading we don't have to assume that the same traders traveled the entire route from origin to destination of objects. Uh, what we find in our research is that most of the trade took place in stages. In other words, uh, relatively short legs carried out by different merchants. Let's say a merchant is from Fez, he'll travel to Situl Massa, and then he'll sell his wares to someone in Sigil Massa who, who will bring them on to the next stage, probably going to Tottentel, which is in the middle of the desert. And then someone else will buy his goods and then take them on from there to, let's say, Tadneka, which is on the southern end of the trade route. Passing through territories, and that's so weird, you know, this, this, this trade went through at least uh, four different territories. One normally paid what we might describe crudely as protection money. Passing through the desert, for example, there are nomads in the desert, nomadic tribes in the desert that control basically the trade routes. Uh, and they were very happy to provide guidance <laughs> and security for a price. 
We'll take a break right here. When we come back, we'll talk about what these trade routes were and uh, what else was traded. This is MTSU on the record. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Ron Messier is a professor emeritus of history and an archaeologist who is the driving force behind an exhibit called Caravans of Gold that was displayed at the Block Museum of Art at Northwestern University last year and is now housed in the Smithsonian. Uh, But for the pandemic, it would be on display to the public right now. What were these trade routes across the African continent run from where to where? The the section of the trade route that I worked on specifically and focused research uh, really from graduate school on to uh, the publication of the book on Sigil Massa, which came out in 2015. So gosh, I started this research, what, 1969, a long time ago. Um, so I, I, I excavated the city of Sigil Massa, which is in the southern part of Morocco, the very northern edge of the Sahara Desert. I became interested in that particular site because uh, my dissertation was on the circulation of gold coins. Gold coins, okay, so to make gold coins, you had to get gold from somewhere and literature told us that the gold came from West Africa. It didn't give us very much specific information about that, but that's what I decided I was gonna study. Where are they getting this gold? And, and, uh, and, and what was the volume of this gold coming across the desert? As it turns out, the gold was mined uh, on the West African coast, what we call today, uh, it's called, uh, well, from colonial times on, the Gold Coast. Uh, so we're talking about the upper reaches of the Senegal River, the upper reaches of the Niger River. Uh, uh, the areas were known as Bambuk and Bure. And uh, the gold was essentially panned from rivers. Uh, and then transported across the desert. Um, the, uh, so how did traders obtain this gold from the miners? Well, uh, salt was in very high demand south of the Sahara Desert. So here's how the trade worked. Merchants would gather in Sigil Nasa. Uh, merchants coming from all over the uh, Islamic world and even the Christian world. So people coming from many different places in the Mediterranean would gather in Sigil Massa, northern edge of the desert. 
They would sell their wares to merchants who would then organize caravans to cross the desert, going to one of the several port cities south of the desert. Now I use the term port cities because Sigil Massa, in a sense, was a port on the edge of the desert. Cities like Timbuktu or Tadmecca or Audagust, these were port cities south of the desert. The desert was seen as a great sea. I mean, we didn't have roads going across the desert, right? We had sort of vast expanses of um, sand and rocks. Uh, so people navigated across the desert just as one would navigate across the sea. Navigate is a decidedly <laughs> nautical term, isn't it? Okay. And we somehow uh, think of the desert as a sea. We think of camels as the ship of the desert. Right. So um, merchants with their various goods travel into the desert and uh, about half to two thirds of the way across the desert is an area where salt is mined. So they would trade many of their goods for salt take the salt um, to West Africa, where it was in very high demand, and the salt was traded for gold. And many other things south of the desert, uh, uh, ebony wood, uh, ivory, um, ostrich feathers, shields. Uh, uh, they were very famous for making shields uh, in, in the southern part of the Sahara Desert. Um, so uh, salt was so precious in sub-Saharan Africa that um, this is certainly hyper hyperbole, but so merchants trading many of their goods for salt, but of course they, they retained a lot of their goods too. So when they get to sub-Saharan Africa, they have a variety of products coming from the Mediterranean world plus salt. Salt was extremely valuable uh, in West Africa because it was rare uh, and, it was, and it was essential to life. Somewhat hyperbolically, uh, legend says that salt was traded for gold on a weight for weight basis. What does that mean? A pound of salt, a pound of gold, can you imagine? But what the exaggeration is meant to point out is, is how valuable the salt really was. And there are legends about how this trade was carried out. So one of my favorite uh, stories is that the merchants would take their wares, so their salt and whatever other goods they had, manufactured goods from the Mediterranean world, and they would go by the, on the bank of the river uh, near the area where salt, uh, where gold was uh, gathered, and they would lay their wares out on blankets on the, on the bank of the river, and they would go away. And the gold merchants would come and they would look at the merchandise and they would take the merchandise and leave a certain amount of gold and they would go away. And the merchants would come back and pick up the gold. If they were not satisfied, they would, they would leave messages, no, we need more than this. And, and so people who mined the gold and the merchants never saw each other face to face. Again, that's a legend, but it's meant to suggest that the actual locations of the gold mining industry was highly guarded and kept secret 
from the people seeking the gold. We'll take another break right here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. We're talking about Caravans of Gold, an exhibit that would be on display at the Smithsonian right now, but for the COVID-19 pandemic, with Dr. Ron Messier, a professor emeritus of history, who shared some of his discoveries in an exhibit about it at the Block Museum of Art at Northwestern last year. For people who are not familiar with the disciplines of archaeology and history, Explain to folks how someone, an academic, can take a look at a few shards or a few fragments of artifacts from an archaeological dig and put together a narrative that explains what people did centuries and centuries ago. Okay, this is what we tried to do in the exhibit, actually. So, um, you know, the subtitle of the exhibit, I mean, the title was Caravans of Gold, Subtitle, Fragments in Time. So what archaeologists take out of the ground are fragments, mostly ceramic fragments, pottery of various kinds, uh, beads, fragments of glass, um, broken pieces of jewelry. Uh, Rarely do we find entire pieces in an archaeological setting. Occasionally we find something that's near complete. So what we decided to do in the exhibit was to exhibit fragments. Uh, But we, you know, archaeologists uh, try to envision what this fragment was when it was whole, when it, I mean, before it was destroyed, before it was broken, before it was buried. and in some in some cases we can we can reconstruct if we can find enough of the pieces. So we did exhibit a few pieces that were reconstructed, but more more often we exhibited the fragments next to items that were much newer, uh, not necessarily from uh, the same area, but which were like what the fragments would have been before they were broken. And that would allow uh, the person visiting the exhibit to imagine what the fragments were and what they said. And I'll give you an example. So we find uh, fragments of copper that uh, might have been, you know, a little circle, uh, a disc, It might be a triangle, it might be a square, it might have holes in it, and we wonder what these are. 
Well, when we look at some of the shields that were constructed in the Sahara Desert, shields made out of leather, out of a very special leather from a particular kind of antelope, those shields are decorated with, with copper embellishments sewn onto the, onto the leather shield. Ah, now we know what these fragments of copper that we found were used for and, and how they might have been traded. Likewise with pieces of pottery. You know, what I spent a lot of time doing, for example, after digging up fragments of pottery, was to spend time in the workshops of traditional potters in Sigil Massa. I would visit them and I would, you know, show them some of my fragments and they'd say, oh yeah, we know what that is. That is one of these. And they would show me a new piece that they had just made. And they would tell me what it was used for. When I take people to the museum to, to sort of to give them a little guided tour through the thing, I, I ask them to, and this, this word is really useful in trying to make sense out of this, to use the word imagine. When you're looking at these objects, these fragments, one has to imagine what they were used for. And, you know, that might sound um, unreliable to a lot of people, but, you know, people's imaginations can easily be stimulated. And with some background information and some context, imagination has a better chance of, of, of reaching uh, its destination at, at, at sort of getting a grasp of the story. When you talk to people about how people from other continents came to Africa during this period of time because they had a uh, financial interest in items that were there, do you get sort of blank stares from some people? Because there seems to be a myth that Africa was virtually undiscovered by the white man until relatively contemporary times. And it was called disparagingly the dark continent. Is that just some sort of an ethnocentric colonial concept of what Africa was like? I, I think that's exactly what it is. Uh, it's a misconception that started in colonial times. So when would that, what are we talking about there? Um, 16th century, 17th century, probably more so in the 18th and 19th century. Well, maybe let, let me refer to an object that helps explain uh, some about this. So in the middle of the 14th century, in the 1350s or 60s, a map was produced in Spain. It's called the Catalan Atlas. And it was made as a gift from King Pedro of Aragon to his cousin, King Charles V in France. Uh, and this is a map of the known world. Sort of the center of the map is the Mediterranean, Europe on the northern side, Africa on the southern side. But when Arab geographers were producing a similar map of the Mediterranean, the opposite was true. Africa was on the top side of the map and Europe was on the bottom side of the map. One of the authors that I uh, read a lot of when I was in graduate school in the years after that was Ferdinand Bordel, whose area of specialization was the Mediterranean world, so much so that we called him Mr. Mediterranean. And he made a pretty bold statement one time, and he said, if you took our map of the Mediterranean and turned it upside down, Africa would look much more prominent. 
So the way we normally look at maps in the Western world is a very egocentric way of looking at maps. You know, the Islamic world looks at maps upside down or, or maybe right side up because quite honestly, they made their maps before we did. So back to the Catalan Atlas, which is upside down from an Islamic standpoint. Well, Africa is there and sort of in the center of the African portion is a character sitting on the throne holding a golden orb and a scepter and his name is Mansa Musa. Legend says that he was the richest man in the world because he controlled the sources of gold. And there's a lot of truth, I think, to the fact that he was very rich. Well, that, that should really catch our attention. Oh, let me, let me refer to one other scholar, Jacques Meunier, who talks about the Catalan Atlas in his work. And he suggests that European cartographers became aware of Africa from merchants, Genoese merchants living in Sigil Massa, which happens to be the city that I excavated on the northern edge of the Sahara Desert. So they would have been merchants, semi-permanently installed in Sigil Massa, Europeans now, who are giving information to European cartographers for the sake of producing their first maps of Africa. The story that we try to tell in the exhibit, Caravans of Gold, is placing Africa in the center of this global economy. So yeah, that is rewriting the history. That is rewriting the story and giving Africa a much more prominent, a much more central role. Is there more field work in your future? Oh gosh, uh, Jenna, I, I wish I could say yes. Okay, so ironically, this is where in the month of September. Uh, September is the month typically that I work in Morocco at the Agamat site. Clearly, we had to cancel this year's uh, excavation. We're hoping that we can put it back together in March or April. Who knows what travel is going to be like then. I, I don't think I have too many more trips uh, ahead of me, but I, I'd like to do a couple more, yeah. I hope you never stop digging, either literally or academically. Well, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've turned to writing fiction uh, most recently. I'm just finishing up a novel, uh, which actually uh, largely takes place in Sigil Massa. And it does talk about the gold trade. And uh, I'm reading proofs of it now, actually. I, I'm, it should be out in, as a real book before Christmas. And it does come out. Send me a copy and come back on the show and we'll talk about it. I'd love to. Dr. Ron Messier, thank you for being our guest today on MTSU On the Record. It was, it was really fun. Thanks. We'll be right back. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. MTSU's John D. Hood was honored recently by Rutherford County 
having the 911 Administration and Training Center on Fortress Boulevard named in his honor. Currently MTSU's Director of Government and Community Affairs, Hood is the longest-serving member of the 911 board and also serves as treasurer. It's always been gratifying to realize what this means to everyone in our community to be able to have this number for all kinds of emergency service. And over the years, we were able to build and pay for this building to serve as our training facilities and our headquarters. This community has been good to my family and to me, and I take pleasure in working to make it a better place in which to live. It's service. It's called the rent we pay for the space we occupy on Earth. I'm just trying to keep my rent card. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU On The Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.